Teeth. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Uh, and tonight we have a real treat, a treat, big surprise. We have a, um, a big name speaker that I brought in that uh, I, I worked hard to get him. We got him. And uh, he's a good friend of mine. His name is Sean Slate. He is the, currently serving as the pastor of Redeemer. So if, you've ne- if you haven't found a church home and you just want to check out a great church in town, um, come check out Redeemer. It's at 17th and Highland. It's where we do cafe days and where we've met for RUF in the past before. Um, but Sean Slate, a uh, good friend of mine, he's new to Knoxville. He uh, hails from the 901. He's got some, he's got some, he's got some Memphis in him. Um, he went to seminary at Covenant Seminary, which is in St. Louis. So if you went on the St. Louis mission trip, he went there, and um, he's, uh, uh, he used to serve as the RUF campus minister at the University of Virginia, which has a decent basketball team these days, and uh, he served there for 10 years and has now brought his family to Knox, Vegas to take over Redeemer and then the fort and then the world. And so, um, super glad that he could be here to help uh, open up. He's going to continue our series in Proverbs tonight. And before I bring him up, I just want to give you one last word about him. He whispered in my ear right before I came up here if I could name a bocce ball team, my bocce ball team would be named Chubachi. <laughs> give it up for Sean Slate. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, it's good to be with you. If you have a Bible, good. All right, you don't, you're not doing anything, are you? Uh, if you have a Bible and you would like to do so, you can turn uh, to Proverbs chapter three. We're going to be looking tonight. How's this going, Matt? There's it's pulsating. It's sort of like sort of like a discotheque on spring break. That's how it feels. Um, uh, we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter three, verse twenty-one through thirty-five. As Matt said, my name's Sean Slate, and I was the campus minister at the University of Virginia for almost 11 years, and uh, so to be here with you tonight is pretty exciting, because I haven't been with college students in a long time, and I really miss it, and I was just up in Charlottesville over the weekend, and so I saw a bunch of my students, and so to come back here and to be with y'all is a real treat for me, using Matt's language, treat. Uh, It's more of my treat, and so thank you for the invitation, which none of you offered me, but Matt offered to me, so thankful to be here. Uh, But Matt uh, told me that y'all are studying the Proverbs, and I think the Proverbs are uh, really difficult. The book is difficult because it's about the cultivation of wisdom. And uh, the reason why that's difficult is because we all need wisdom, but we all lack it. And in order to get wisdom, you have to pursue humility, which means you have to acknowledge that you need someone to help you. And one of the great claims of Christianity is that we actually have a God 
who is our Heavenly Father, and He delights to teach us. And one of the ways that He teaches us is through this book called the Bible, and in particular with respect to wisdom, this book called the Proverbs. And so this, uh, this evening, what we want to do is we want to humble ourselves enough to listen to our Heavenly Father and listen to Him as He speaks to us from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 21 through 35. So I'll read if you'll follow along. I think it's in your handy-dandy notebook as well. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. And do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Will you pray with me for the teaching of it? Thanks be to God. Uh, (laughs) Heavenly Father, we are very thankful uh, for this your word, that you are a God who isn't hidden nor silent, but you are a good father who delights uh, to teach his children. And so it's our prayer that tonight as we look at your word, you would be kind to speak to us by your spirit, that we might see lovely, righteous, and wise things from this your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, if, uh, if life was the television show The Office... Um, you know, I've, my bet is that every one of you would rather be Jim Halpert than Dwight Schrute, right? If you know who Dwight is, Dwight is the beet farmer. He's sort of a, a self-appointed cop. He's a crappy old, he has an old crappy muscle car. He's got terrible hair. He's a poor dresser. He's a, the power-hungry assistant to the regional manager. And he's just someone that's super easy to make fun of and put a stapler and a gel, you know, a jello mold and all that sort of stuff. And he's really kind of a fool. He's someone you love to make fun of. Uh, and then there's Jim, right? And Jim is smooth. Uh, he's cool. He's funny. He's friendly. He can kind of see through all the office foolishness. And he marries the cute secretary, and they have a baby together that's cute. And then he throws cool parties with karaoke and all that sort of stuff. And he's this easy guy. He's cool. He's easy to get along with. And if most of you are human, you would rather be Jim than you would be Dwight. And I think if we're all honest, right, the wisdom that seems to drive our life is the wisdom of not being Dwight, 
right? The wisdom of not looking stupid. That's kind of what drives us, that pursuit. When I was in seminary uh, in, in St. Louis, as Matt uh, said and nobody cared about, uh, I, was, uh, I was completely intimidated by one of my professors. And so we were about two weeks into classes, and I finally had a question for him, right? And so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I don't know if I should ask him. Like, he's so scary, and he's got this goatee, and like, he's frightening. What do I do? And so I said, fine, okay, fine, I can do it. I'm going to ask him this question. So after class, I stood in line to wait to ask my professor this question. And as I'm standing in line, I'm thinking, all right, Sean, it's going to be okay. Just introduce yourself, get his name right, ask your question, and then get out of there. And so I'm standing in line, and I'm just repeating his name over and over and over again in my head. I'm like, all right, Dr. Williams, it's 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 Dr. Williams. And finally, it's my turn. And so when I get up to ask my question, I say, hello, Dr. Williams, my name's Dr. Williams. And he, and he just looked at me, and he was like, are you, are you sure? And, uh, and I was completely, I just turned and I ran. I didn't even ask my question. I was totally humiliated because I'd been standing there in line working my tail off to not look like a fool. And yet I left as a fool. And if uh, you're anything like me, um, the thing that rules you, right, is to not look stupid, is to not be Dwight. And, and you've seen that in, in your life, I would assume, here at the University of Tennessee when you got here, your first day of class, right? Do you have the right clothes? Uh, do you know the right people? Do you know how to get to class without a map? And do you know the right bus to get on, right? And, and my, I've only been here for about six months, but it seems to me that the goal of Knoxville and the goal of the University of Tennessee is, is to pursue the right life. And the right life of this place is that you're kind of the star of a Yeti commercial where you're Patagonia fleeced out, you've got your trucker hat, uh, you're making your way to class, you know, in a hurry after having won a mad game of cornhole with all your bros uh, after an amazing Young Life team meeting. And, uh, and that sort of is just the truth. It's just, it's just the, and that's sort of the wisdom and the, right, the righteous living of Knoxville. But, you know, Jesus is actually calling us to something that's actually much greater and much more significant, and yet it's more difficult and yet beautiful. Uh, Jesus is actually calling us to live the life of the wisdom of righteousness, right? The wisdom of righteousness. And that's what I want us to think about tonight, this wisdom of righteousness. And I, I think we'll probably, we'll see, we'll probably take it on in two ways. I think the first way we might take it on is through this lens of a righteous confidence. And then the second way is we'll think about it through this lens of a righteous care. All right, so there'll be two-ish points. The first point is probably going to be righteous confidence. The second will be righteous care. Point one is going to be this righteous confidence. And then point two will be the righteous care. So first, the righteous confidence. If you're taking notes, uh, which two of you are, uh, the rest of you are not. And then uh, we'll look at, we'll begin in verse 33, a righteous confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses is the dwelling of the righteous. So what God is saying here is he's saying there are two ways of living in this world, right? The way of wickedness or the way of righteousness. And what he's saying is there's one way that God hates and there is one way that God loves. And he contrasts it, this way of wickedness versus way of righteousness. And he fleshes it out in verse 34 and 35. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. 
but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. And what he's saying here is that God hates the scorner. He hates the arrogant. He hates those that are standing up or sitting up above everybody else, mocking and sneering and, uh, and thinking and living only for themselves. But he loves the humble. God hates the fool, but he loves the way of wisdom. And that's why this proverb begins in verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And so what God is doing is he's inviting his children to follow in this way of wisdom. All right? Now what is wisdom? Well, later on in the book of Proverbs, y'all might get to it this semester, it says in Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's why verse 34 is encouraging humility. Because when you fear something, you realize that there's something bigger than you. There's something greater than you. There's someone or something that is in control and stronger and larger, more beautiful, more glorious than you. And so he says to pursue humility. Why pursue humility? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the fear of the Lord is kind of this interesting phrase, right? Like, we're not supposed to fear. We're just saying, do not fear. And that the Bible is saying, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And oftentimes when we hear this phrase about fear, we think of the fear that's invoked by snakes or spiders or the fear that it's in, that's invoked by Saul 17. Um, but, uh, but the fear of the Lord is actually more like the fear or the phobia of the fantastic Mr. Fox. Has anybody seen the fantastic Mr. Fox? All right, three of us have seen it. And, uh, you know, he, he, is, he has a fear of wolves. This fox fears wolves. But whenever he sees a wolf, he's just in awe. Right? The movie, if you've seen it, it ends and the fox puts up his hand and he just salutes the wolf because it's so amazing and so beautiful. And throughout the Bible, right, the fear of God is this overwhelming amazement. It would be like walking through the Rockies and just having your mouth shut. Because of its beauty and its glory. It's like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and being silenced by the greatness and the glory of where you are. This past week, uh, my family went back to Charlottesville and we were driving back in the, in the car. And we were listening to this thing called the radio. And uh, we kind of got away from the iPhone for a little bit. And some cars still have radios. And uh, all of a sudden, this song by Ruth B. came on. Uh, it's called Lost Boy. Anybody know the Lost Boy? It's like the most lovely song I've ever heard. And so we're driving in the car. And my kids, they're fighting. They're kicking each other. They're yelling at each other. They're throwing Cheez-Its at each other. They're grounding them in each other's hair. Right? And they're just screaming and hollering. And all of a sudden, Ruth B. comes on singing Lost Boy. And at the first note, Like our entire car just got silent. It was this note that just commanded and demanded a silence for us to listen to. And as it came on and she began to sing, everyone is just silent, so we slowly started to listen. As we're listening to this song, we like are captured by the hook. 
and we slowly start to sing along. I'm a lost boy from Neverland, usually hanging out with Peter Pan. And when we're bored, we play in the woods, always on the run from Captain Hook. Run, run, lost boy. They say to me, away from all reality. It's this lovely song. You should go Google it or whatever it is you do. But uh, at that moment, as we're listening to this song and joining in, we experienced this thing that the Bible calls fear. It's a moment of reverence and awe in the face and in the midst of beauty. And yet as Ruth B. is singing, she's saying, she's inviting us to run away from reality. And yet what God is doing as He invites us to fear the Lord is He's inviting us into the depths of reality. Rather than to run away from everything you're afraid of, to run away from all the things that you can't control, God is inviting you and me to run to the depths of reality, which is Him. And when you do that, that's what we see in verse 24, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, you will sleep. Your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked. When it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Right? When you fear the Lord, when you recognize His greatness and His beauty and His grandeur, He becomes your confidence. Right? The fear of the Lord leads to confidence and not fear. And it's not because you have everything in control. And it's not because everything's going to be okay, because the reality is it's not. And it's not because you feel safe all the time. The reason you can have confidence is because God. Because God is. Because He made the world, and He continues to reign and rule over it. And when you fear the Lord, you can begin to be all right. Even when your friends fail you, and when your foes assail you, and when Taco Bell kills you, right? God continues to be God, and He reigns, and He loves you. That's why it says in verse 24, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Now, uh, I know many of you, as you try to sleep, it's not all that sweet. I mean, there are nightmares and there are fears uh, that keep you up. Uh, There are fears of your tests tomorrow uh, and your exams and papers. There are fears about relationships that you're in. There are fears of the internships and trying to find jobs. There are fears about your future. Uh, There are fears that you might be left behind and your friends won't love you. And I think really at the end of the day, that's one of our greatest fears is that no one's going to love us. And we're going to be left alone all by ourselves. And uh, and we're just constantly so insecure. There's no confidence in us because we don't think anybody loves us. And that's why we're all like Michael Scott, uh, who want everybody to love us. That's all he wants, right? His motto is, I don't want my employees to fear me. I want them to fear how much they love me, right? And uh, our entire experience is to try to manipulate situations, peoples, and communities to get what we want. To know and to secure someone loving us. That's our confidence, The things that we look to that we think are going to make people love us and secure their love, right? What is that for you? 
Is it um, success? Is it good grades? Uh, internships? Um, your connections? Your lake house? Your summer at camp? Your good works? Right? All those things that we look to, they're, they're good. They're worthy of, of praise in many ways. But they are not ultimate things. They're good things, they're just not ultimate things. And when we put our hope and our confidence in good things rather than ultimate things, we find ourselves insecure and anxious. And my fear for me and my children and my fear for you is that uh, we feel like we need everything in order to be okay. We feel like we have to be omnicompetent We feel like we have to have everything, know everything, succeed at everything, or else we're unlovable. And so we want all things and a little bit of Jesus, and we'll be okay. C.S. Lewis once said, if you aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. Right, you hear that? If you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim... At earth, you get neither. And it's the same way with the way of righteousness. If you aim at everything, you get nothing. But if you aim at Jesus, you get everything. He alone is your confidence. Because there's going to come a time when all these things that you're putting your hope in will fail you. They just will. There's going to come a time in your life... When your parents stop putting your grades on their refrigerator. It's going to happen. I don't know when, but it will happen. Uh, There's going to be a time where your muscles become flabby. uh, As much as you love to show them off uh, while you're tanning, uh, there's a time when your body will flab up and you'll be ashamed of it. I'm I'm getting there. Um, Not quite there. Uh, There's going to be a time when uh, you're going to lose the job that you love. There is going to be a time when the guy that you love is going to break up with you. There is going to be a time when Patagonia is going to be bought by some Cuban company. Uh, Now that Barack Obama is spending his time in Havana this week. It's not a political statement. It's a data fact. Um, But uh, And there's going to be a time where your bank account uh, and the markets are so uncertain you have no hope. And there will be a day when your good deeds are going to give way to moments of incredible selfishness. And what are you going to do? How are you going to sleep at night? And God is saying, look to me. Because I am your confidence. And when he becomes your confidence, you will then be freed to care for other people. Think about what is it that kind of keeps you, keeps me from loving other people? Well, for me, I don't love people because I don't think anyone loves me. Like, I don't think anyone's going to care about me. And if I spend my days thinking about them, loving them, caring about them, who's going to do that for me? And life, it often feels out of control. And I'm afraid that in the midst of all the chaos... I'm going to be left alone. And so if I don't care for myself, who will? And yet the gospel tells us over and over again that God loves you. Like he really loves you. 
that He died for you, that He knows you, that He's going to provide for you. And why is He going to provide for you? Because He actually cares about you. And because God cares about you, you will be okay. You're going to be okay. Because God loves you. And it's... And it's this love that He has for us that actually frees us to begin to think about people other than ourselves. right? In my experience uh, as a pastor for 20 years and as a human for about 43, uh, it seems to me that... Thanks, Matt. Uh, It seems to me that uh, that we all enter these relationships trying to get loved. right? We enter into community. We love community because it means all these people are going to love me. I love RUF because it means that Matt's going to love me. I want to go to church. I want to be in a church because the church is going to love me. I want to get married so that somebody can love me. And the gospel is saying over and over again, you're already loved. And because you are loved, you can now love and care for others. And this care, this love, it's not sort of just warm fuzzies about like I care for you uh, or sort of in the awkward feels of middle school where you feel things in parts of your body that you didn't know existed until then, right? This is like this embodied, some of you are still wondering what that part of the body is, I guess. Uh, but, uh, uh, or parts of that body. But anyway, it's this embodied, it's this real life action of caring, right? And the way of um, the way of righteousness It's not ephemeral, but it's actually tangible. And that's what I actually love about this passage. It's so normal and mundane. Look at verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. How do you care for somebody? If you have the power to do something good, do it. If, if you have the power to recognize the dignity in another human being, do it. If you have the power to recognize someone's kindness, thank them for it. If you have the ability to praise someone for their goodness and their work, do it. Like part of being a Christian, part of following Jesus is just caring for other people in normal ways. Like recognizing dignity. Like mowing your yard. Like turning your music lower at 10 so that your neighbors can sleep. Right? When you have the power to do good, do it. And then it says in verse 28, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again, tomorrow I'll give it. When you have it with you. He, it's, so it's like when you like borrowed, when I borrowed 20 bucks from Matt, and then Matt comes over, hey Matt, hey, hey Slate, do you have my 20 bucks? Come back tomorrow, you know? And then come back again tomorrow, right? When you borrow someone's like computer, you should give it back to them. That's what he's saying. Like when you, uh, when you borrow that girl's dress so that you can go to, prom uh, with your with your boyfriend um, you should probably give the dress back right um, when you borrow money you pay it back that's caring for people right why do we not do those things because we don't think people are going to give us our stuff back 
Verse 29, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. Essentially what what God is inviting us to is to love one another in normal, mundane ways. Uh, you know, we hate the word, Christians tend to hate the word secular, but Christianity is extremely secular. And by that, what I mean is that Christianity is just about life. And for Christians, everything is sacred. And oftentimes when we think about Christianity and what it means to be a good Christian, we think about going to church every week, and we think about going to RUF, and we think about camp, and we think about uh, summer conference, and we think about mission trips in St. Louis, and we think about Bible studies and prayer meetings. But why do Christians do those things? Like, is the goal of being a Christian, going to a bunch of Bible studies, and praying a lot, and going on a bunch of mission trips. What is the goal that you would love? Like Christians do these things so that we become people who love. So why do we read the Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we go on mission? Why do we do those things? Why do you go to small groups? So that we can remind each other of how God has cared for us in Jesus. And as we remember His love for us, then we are free to go out into the world reflecting His great love so that we might care for others as He has cared for us. The end of Christianity isn't your silly little Bible study. The end of Christianity is that you would love as He has loved you. Why would we do this? Well, we do it because we have confidence in God. And what we believe as Christians is that God is actually good. We don't understand all His ways, but we believe that He is actually good. And as a God who is good, He rules and He reigns over the entire world. And He sees everything. And He sees everything about you. He sees everything about me. And He sees us all the way down. All the way down into the deepest, darkest, ugliest places of our lives. And He still cares about you. He still loves you. And how does He express that love? He expresses that love by coming down from heaven and dwelling among us and becoming our neighbor. And as he comes down, he speaks kindness and truth. He serves rather than being served, right? Rather than plotting evil, as it talks about in the passage, he actually plots good for us. Rather than pursuing death, he pursues life. And ultimately, we see him going to the cross for us, where he dies for our violence, where he dies for our boasting, where he dies for our scoffing, where he dies in order to assure us and prove to us that He is a God who cares. He cares about your sin. So much so that He would die for you in your place. So that you might live. Because He cares for you. You are now freed 
to go and care for your neighbor just as he has cared for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful that we're loved by you and cared for by you. And it's our prayer that we would walk in this way of wisdom, of having our confidence set firm in you that we might care for others. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.